Hello and welcome to podcast episode Traeger Method 21. Episode 21 Traeger Method podcast, podcast, the 21st episode of the Traeger Method podcast. Hello and welcome. This episode I'm speaking with Patrick Weekend. He is a return guest. We heard from him sometime in the first five episodes, I believe. Pat of the Leading Edge fanzine did that with Martin and I. We talk about his time living in Venice, hanging out with Dan from XL, going to baseball game, Dodgers game with Mike Muir. We talk about punk gangs a little. Kilroy, the band Kilroy. I always have trouble going from L's to R. Kilroy. 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 It's like a built-in mushmouth name for me. The band Kilroy. We talk about them. Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Pat talks about his RHCP years in LA. Seeing them 38 times in two years. Punk Toilets, the torment that toilets at punk venues went through. We get into that. The conversation ends with Lenny Kravitz. The conversation begins with John Murphy. John Murphy talked about him past episodes. Just a dude. He wasn't in bands. He didn't really do a fanzine or anything. Just a guy we hung out with. Committed suicide a few years ago. Very sadly. I wish I could speak to John Murphy today. I wish he could be a podcast uh, guest. But we will remember John Murphy. That's how the conversation begins. Thank you so much for listening to the Traeger Method Podcast with Patrick Weekend. Great to be back on, uh, what is it now? Spikes and Razor Blades podcast. <laughs> Spikes and Razor Blades. Jump in the pit. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Thrash memories. Thrash um, um, any, uh, Martin was saying that you probably have some corrections from his appearances. Uh, he called it podcast penalty box. He said, <laughs> he said, for instance, that he got John Murphy's, where John Murphy lived, incorrect. Yeah, he said, Martin said Santee. And I remember John was from Tierra Santa. Big difference. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, John is probably smacking Martin from the grave. <laughs> Were you in touch with John later in his life? Yeah. Um, we had gotten, you know, we lost touch over the years. Like, you know, whatever. Like, we lost touch with everybody before the days of Facebook and cell phones and whatnot. And time flattening. Yeah, exactly. And then John married Sandy, Sandy Simon, who I think I barely knew back in the day. She was a, she, she was a punk. She was a punker, yeah. Honestly, I don't even remember if I knew her back in the day, but Pat, or Sandy has a sister, Patty, who I knew and ended up becoming close with in San Francisco when I moved up to San Francisco in whenever it was, the early 90s. So John married Sandy, who was the sister of Patty. Patty was his BFFs with Kim who I was close with as well. And they were all close with Robin Atwell, who I was super close with for the whole, all the, all the time. I never lost touch with Robin primarily. So anyway, yes. <laughs> the short answer is I was in touch with John in our adult lives. What year did John die? Uh, God, well, three years ago, maybe. It's so weird to try to think about now because the the entire last year had never even happened. Right. I would have said probably two years ago, but because of COVID, I'll say three. Three. Tack on the lost year. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any funny John Murphy stories from the punk days? 
I don't really remember any punk stories with John. <laughs> part of this, part of your podcast has, you know, spurred me to do a lot of digging in my senior year of high school journal. Mm-hmm. I think I may have sent you a, a picture of this page. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? It was, you know, Oh yeah. So last Saturday, ill repute and no, not ill repute, Kilroy, Kilroy and, Battalion of Saints and personal conflicts. It's always Battalion of Saints and personal conflict. <laughs> played played at Fairmont Hall. And after the show, Kilroy and John Murphy and Mark Mullen and whoever else all went to Martin's house because his parents were in Las Vegas. It was awesome and nothing got broken. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have that on my phone here, like the entry you sent me. Yeah, I feel like I may have. I feel like I must have sent it to you and Martin after you guys talked about John. Yeah, right. You're always sending the clarifications. That's why Martin was thinking that we got to do a po- the podcast penalty box for when he says stuff wrong. Oh, this this is it. Okay, the, this is the uh, the entry from your journal that you were referring to. It says, "Quote: After the show, Kilroy and all their friends." These three girls from Grass Valley and me, Greg, Mark, and Jason, and John Murphy spent the night at Martin's house because his parents were in Las Vegas. It was loads of fun. Everyone was cool and nothing got broken or anything. Today, I got a letter from Joanne, period. Just tacked on. But Martin actually said that that this deserves a podcast penalty box, this quote, because it it leads it leaves out a crucial I recall Martin said to me that it leaves out a crucial memory because you say we all spent the night at Martin's house, his parents were gone and it was loads of fun. Everyone was cool. But Martin said that Jim from Kilroy, this is the band Kilroy, who were on like Mystic, right? Yeah, they're I mean, they're at least on a couple of Mystic comps. And- yeah, they put out a seven inch and an album, I think, on Mystic. L.A. punk band. Jim is now a porn producer, as far as I know, in Los Angeles. Yeah, or he is, or he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Martin said that Jim got super drunk that night, and that Martin lived in a little, uh, what would you call them, like townhouses or condos? Yeah, townhouse. I guess like small, you know probably three bedroom condos with, uh, you know, one up, one down type places. And anyways, so they're tightly arranged in an apartment complex type style. And Martin said that Jim got, was drunk with some girl and that they, you know, those places, all the units look basically the same. And having just visited for the first time that they got drunk and were out in the parking lot making out or something, and then wanted to come back into the place. And they ended up like pounding on the neighbor's, door the unit like another unit in a different building and jim has like huge liberty spike kind of hair you know God, i don't remember that at all that's what martin said i'm sure that's a that sounds like a pretty real memory no well sure I mean, it's a it's a good one and if that if that puts me in the penalty box then i'll you're in the penalty box it was the, the, but i'm putting your old self in the penalty box though actually breaking yeah so um were you did you go to that show in LA with Kilroy where we stayed at one of their houses? Oh yeah. Tell us about that. That was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a uh, god, it was one of those classic LA shows. I'm going to say it was at the Sun Valley Sportsman's Hall. Mhm. And it was, you know, Kilroy and Aggression and Dr. No and Ill Repute and Circle One and who the hell knows played at this show, but one of those awesome shows where there's 17 bands and we were, you know, young, dumb punk teenagers and we loved them all. And we must've been in touch with Kilroy to set up an interview for leading Ed. I think Martin might've said that they, uh, maybe we, they reached out to us at some point and then we became friends with them. Yeah. I I can't remember, you know, how we, know them or whatever and maybe it must have been maybe it was all pre-planned that we were going to stay at someone's house i mean because we did so i imagine it was planned that we i don't think we just you know figured it out at the show where is sun valley sportsman hall is that like in the valley san fernando valley or yes i i guess it's in sun valley (laughs) (laughs) it's a pretty far flung flung place though if i remember like driving out, out deep in the valley 
Yeah, like driving back to San Diego after a show would be painful. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take you two and a half hours. Well, at two in the morning, driving like a <laughs> two hours, but yeah, it's going to take you forever. And it's out in the valley and it's 110 degrees and I'm sure there's no air conditioning in there. And Place was brutal. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, after the show, we went and stayed at someone's house, the guitar player, the bass player, who the hell knows, who lived in this massive house in like the West Valley, like Encino, I guess. At the time, I would have had no idea where I was. Right. Now, I would say it probably was like Encino or something where there are big, bigger, fancier homes. And I, Martin, I think, said that the guy's dad was like a lawyer for the cars or something. That's what I remember, too, that he was lawyer for the cars, like a music lawyer. And I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. So we'll just accept it as the truth. We stayed out there. To us, it was a fucking mansion. Total mansion. There was yeah. a fountain in the backyard. Yeah, there's like a fountain and a swimming pool. And I mean, you know, we were just suburban kids and lived in our normal suburban homes. And to this, this was big, fancy fucking mansion. And we all stayed there and crashed on the floor or whatever. And in the morning, Kilroy cooked us breakfast. I remember they, the dad or mom had left like... Was it one hundred dollar? A hundred? I remember there being like a hundred dollar bill, or maybe more for breakfast. It's like a month's paycheck. It was, it was massive to us. But then we went like grocery shopping for breakfast stuff with the Kilroy guys, and they all had like blue hair and <laughs> yeah, bondage pants, bondage pants, the full L.A. punk style. As we st- stroll down the aisles of Ralph's. <laughs> shopping for like trying to spend a hundred dollars on breakfast you're just like how do we even i think we have in the leading edge do we mention it we mentioned the breakfast in the kilroy interview maybe we do i would have to check but some at some point somewhere we'd mention the breakfast because we make a joke about it or something maybe it's in the kilroy record review maybe yeah i, don't, I, I made know. a huge impression the hundred dollar breakfast <laughs> hey, $100 breakfast is huge. But now if you went out for brunch and spent $100, that would be just like two people. No, yeah. <laughs> it's, forget it. You're lucky to get change after you tip. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the Kilroy dudes. Um, didn't they have two lead singers? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think they did have two singers. I don't remember... Who was who? Jim was the bass player, maybe? Guitar? I think so. <laughs> well, yeah, then I think they did have like a crazy, they had some kind of crazy system with two singers. I wonder what was behind that. Yeah, I don't know. They had a singer and a hype man, I guess. I remember one of them had being blonde and one being dark haired, and it kind of worked out. Yeah, that sounds right. So I read today that you have worked at the Getty Museum for 27 years. <laughs> yeah, 27 years this month. I think that's the longest anybody I know has held a job at a single employer. That's I mean, it's the Who's long- not a baby boomer? No, it's absurd. It's the longest I've ever done anything. I mean, anything. So what year was that that you started working there 27 years ago? I started there in 94. 94. Yeah. I was in San Francisco, got the job at the Getty and moved back down here for the job, basically. So was San Francisco a short time? I don't even remember you living there. I guess I was gone by that point. Yeah, I was there. I guess it probably was not quite a year. I moved up in 93, ended up getting this job at the Getty and moved back down in 94. Why did you move to San Francisco in the first place? Just for the hell of it. Just because I loved San Francisco and there wasn't much going on down here. You know, I don't know. I was kind of yeah floating around, whatever. And I had a job at the time working for this gallery that had me drive up to San Francisco once a month, a couple times a month, however often it was. And I had friends up there and was, you know, would go up there and have a good time or whatever. And 
there's nothing going on. And so fuck it, I'm moving to San Francisco. And yeah. back then you could just move and find a job and you could pay your rent. And who cares? Oh yeah. 93. No problem. Yeah. Because a bus boy and afford to live in San Francisco. Yeah. So in LA you had been living in, when did you live in Venice? What years was that? Uh, I was living in Venice probably like the two or three years before, three or four years before I moved up to San Francisco. Were you hanging out with Venice people? Like who who were your friends at that time? Well, when I first moved up to LA in the late eighties in 87, I would hang out with Dan Excel every day. We would skate every day. Did you guys have some kind of skating club? <laughs> no. <laughs> Didn't I see a photograph of like a group of you guys? Oh, you, you're talking about, there was a, uh, we did like a skate jam in San Diego. Oh, that's San Diego skate jam. Yeah. So that's like just teenage kids. We just did a skate jam one day in, in PB. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm confl- conflating the two. Took a picture of the crew. Yeah. But yeah. When I moved, uh, when I moved up to LA, I would hang out with Dan every day. We'd skate every day. I'd, you know, go hang out with him. I had Thanksgiving dinner at his mom's house or at his house. He lived with his mom, mom and dad. Um, yeah. So I would hang out and I didn't even, I didn't even live in Venice at that time. I was living with Lipmaster in, uh, Palms. Oh yeah. Greg Lipman. Yeah. Not far from Venice, but yeah. Were you, was Excel playing a lot at that time? Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd, you know, go see Excel all the time. I'd go hang out with them at band practice just for the hell of it. But I don't think I was ever stupid enough to carry an amp. <laughs> no bass rig. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> bass tech is the most brutal job. Yeah. So were you hanging out with suicidal guys at all in that Venice time? Um, yeah. At that time, Dan was working at, the, at Streets of Venice, the skate shop that was owned by Mike Muir's family. I want to say like his parents and him and his brother, Jim. I'm not exactly, you know, the whole, I don't know the whole hierarchy of it all, but they owned Streets of Venice. Dan worked at Streets. I'd go hang out there all the time. And Mike lived upstairs it was in like this weird converted house so i'd be over there all the time mike lived upstairs he'd be hanging out we'd be hanging out whatever and one time i my landlord gave me tickets to a dodger game just randomly had like hey i can't use these four tickets to the dodger game you want them sure and i ended up going to the dodger game with mike dan and Tiny, who was, in effect, Mike Muir's bodyguard. I'm guessing Tiny was a big guy. Yeah, that's, naturally. He was <laughs> six six, three fifty or whatever, so obviously he was called Tiny. Why did Mike need a bodyguard? <sighs> I don't know. Because all these dudes who were suicidal guys decided it was a gang and they decided they didn't like Mike because I, I don't know, because they were a bunch of fucking idiots. But they were all friends. It wasn't just, you know, yeah, this is my body. But it was, they were, you know, they were bros. Did, uh, the, my, did the Venice like, like, cause in Venice, like there's, a, there's gangs like V13 and there's, uh, you know, all sorts of various sets there, but like, was the suicidal tendencies gang a legit gang amongst the gangs? Or were they more of a punk gang? Because I always feel like punk gangs existed in their own ecosphere a little bit, separate from like the larger gang culture of LA. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I don't know, because I hang out with those dudes, so I couldn't say what anyone was really up to, but I would say they're more of a punk gang. Yeah. Like, I don't don't think of like the lads as ever tangling with like the bloods, for instance. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say so. Although, I mean, at some point there had to be some dude who was in the lads or, or whatever who became a drug dealer or something. So there had to be some sort of 
crossover. I don't know. I think someone yeah. wrote a book about L.A. punk gangs. I've never read it, but there's got to be. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called. Martin, Martin might know. What was the gang that was at um, the Sun Valley Sportsman Hall? Remember, they, there was a gang there like a number of times. Uh, FFF? Was that the one? Who, yeah. was, who was Ranger in, the guy Ranger? Either FFF or Lads. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Didn't that one show, they have their faces painted like half black and half white or half blue and half white? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember that. It was like something straight out of the, uh, what do you call them? The Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Did, did John Macias paint his face as well? He may have. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever see Circle One? Yeah. We saw Circle One. I saw them. The one, the one I remember the most is me and Martin and Greg, and I'm guessing you drove up to LA to one of those giant shows, another one with 15 bands. But this is a, you know, this is a bigger show at a bigger place, not at the sportsman's hall. This was at one of those roller rinks. Uh, It was circle one code of honor and then fill in the other 12 bands. But when I lived with Greg, we would, I mean, if I, if I saw Greg today and Nick came up for whatever reason, we would still joke about John Macias screaming into the mic, turn off the lights. For whatever reason they're playing, he wanted the lights turned off. And so turn off the lights. And so Greg and I would make that joke, no matter what, if any light ever needed to be turned out, turn off the lights. <laughs> <laughs> That's the John Macias. Yeah. It's famous for turn off the lights. Turn off the lights. <laughs> that guy was uh, pretty menacing, dude. So I recently saw you posted um, all your Red Hot Chili Peppers ticket stubs and <laughs> T-shirts and things. How many times do you think you saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers? I, I had to see them over 30 times. In the course of what period of time? <laughs> well, the first time I saw them was with you. And oh, yeah. at the Olympic with Keith Morris singing because Anthony Kiedis was in jail or on drugs or I don't know what. And that was 84, I think, right? Because then we saw them again in 84 opening for the cramps. Right. That amazing show. Yeah. And so then I saw them almost all in the 80s. I. I would have said I only saw them in the 80s, except in those stubs, there are two from the 90s. So I saw them 28 times in the 80s and twice in 1990, apparently. That's a steep cliff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but they what, were... What, what year did Hillel Slovak die? Oh, God, I don't remember. 85, 86? So you saw them with another guitarist though after that? Yeah, uh, who was the guy who I think is back in the band now? Hell is that dude's name? The first guitarist after any young guy, John Frusciante. Yeah, so obviously I saw him with him, and then I think Dave Navarro once or twice. Yeah, and. I recall another time seeing them, seeing them with some dude, like some guy, some like P-Funk guitarist who was in the band for, right. I don't you know, for a month or whatever. God, who was that? I don't remember. Is that the guy who used to wear the diaper? <laughs> I'm not sure. Remember him? They had the one guitarist who used to wear the diaper. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe he was wearing a diaper when I saw him with the chili peppers. <laughs> Although that would not have been out yeah, of that place. Would have fit in perfectly. <laughs> I'm surprised there hasn't been a full diaper era of the peppers. Yeah. Uh, they went straight to socks. Do you, did you ever, have you ever met those guys or hung out with them? Uh, Danny and I were, before I moved to LA, you know, when I was hanging out with Danny and skating all the time, 
<coughs> we drove up to LA to hang out with Greg, presumably to go to some shows or whatever, skate and go to, go to shows. We drove up to LA. <coughs> Greg was going to UCLA and was living in, uh, I think he lived in Westwood, but whatever, near Westwood, whatever neighborhood it was he lived in. Danny and I drove up. We got get off the freeway, we get off the 405 onto Santa Monica Boulevard. We're driving down the street, and on the side of the road, we see, you know, on the sidewalk, a bunch of people, activity, and cameras. And we go, holy shit, that's the chili peppers. And either myself or Danny, I don't remember who, was wearing a red hot chili peppers t-shirt at the time. But obviously we pull over and park. <laughs> get on our skateboards, skate up to see what the hell's going on. And you know, hey guys, what's up? What the hell, what's happening? What's going on? They're being filmed for some uh, Spanish language TV show. I don't know what it was called or you know, I don't know anything about it, but that was the only time I met them. It's on the sidewalk while they were being filmed for some Spanish language TV show. <laughs> but you must have seen Flea around town many times. He's such a dude in L.A. Yeah, we'd see him, you know, I'd see him at shows and whatever. And at one point, Flea had this awesome cover band called Hate. It was Flea, Angelo from Fishbone. Angelo was the singer. I don't remember who else was in that band. And they would do like punk covers and play at, you know, whatever shitty little clubs. And that went on for like a summer, I guess, in, I don't know when, 80 something so yeah, you'd see them right at the clubs and you know whatever, so you'd see anybody. What was your best uh, Chili Pepper concert moment? <clears throat> um, I don't know. They all just kind of blur together, but they're all just so fun. You know, they would they would just rock out, and it was a great relief from all the punk days because it was just people having fun dancing and having a good time so it was a joy to not be worried about the violence and all that right so chili peppers definitely uh drew a lot of people including girls <laughs> yeah right so that, that was nice that's <laughs> different than, than than the hardcore shows not that there weren't girls there but what do you think yeah. that what do you think the breakdown was at those shows generally speaking percentage wise like chili peppers? No, like a punk show at Fenders oh, or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. So how many people would Fenders hold? 500? No, actually, Fenders held 1,000 people, I found out recently. Oh, Jesus. Is that big? Yep. Yeah, so, you know, Fenders holds 1,950 or dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, I recently found out that Fender's Grand Ballroom was a thousand capacity because I was trying to get my head around because I know the Olympics. I was speaking of the Olympic. I was going to say the Olympic is around, you know, five thousand or something, seven thousand. Speaking of the Olympic, um, I saw on Instagram that you went and saw that documentary about the Olympic Auditorium. Oh yeah, how yeah. was that? It was good. It was interesting. I you know I only knew the Olympic from going there to see punk shows. Uh, I didn't realize its history. It has a long history. It's been there almost a hundred years. It was, it was used in the Olympics in 1932. Thus the name, they had the boxing and wrestling there. And it's just a crazy famous boxing arena, which I don't know about cause I don't really follow boxing, but you know, they talk about all these dudes throughout the movie and I'm you know, familiar with some of them, whatever. And then they had, wrestling there and like you know rowdy roddy piper would rile up the crowd at the olympic and he started a riot one time and my wife was excited to see the movie because they also did roller derby there and she used to do roller derby so it was good it was it was interesting i didn't know a lot of the history of the olympic unfortunately they only spent five minutes on the punk days oh really the end of the, yeah kind of a footnote yeah, you know, they had uh, they had Gary Tovar in the movie talking about, you know, how they managed to book shows there and whatever. And the place held 10,000 people. So 
10,000. When, when they would cut it off for a punk show, it'd probably be 7,000. You know, they'd cut off the back end. Yeah. Or the stage and whatnot. So, yeah, they just talked about, you know, how <clears throat> they're probably the biggest punk shows in the world at that point. Oh, definitely. I mean, come on. Where would there be one bigger? Yeah. Could have been. I mean, I guess maybe some festival in England or something, but yeah, probably you know, in the mid eighties there, there weren't that, I don't think there were very many 7,000 audiences for punk shows. Did you ever use the bathrooms at the Olympic at a punk show? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure I must have. I don't remember. <laughs> I have this really distinct memory and it's pretty easy to figure out why it stuck with me. I remember walking in the bathroom once there and they, it was like a large square room with urinals around the edges, you know, on the walls. And then, of course, toilet stalls. But I remember all the urinals were being used. And in the center of the room, you know, it was tilted slightly towards a a circular grate in the center of the room. So that, you know, for overflow, it would it would go down there. And squatting, taking a shit over the grill <laughs> was a kid with a mohawk like <laughs> shitting onto the grill it's not some kind of fucking barbarian of course <laughs> <Crap over> great <laughs> thing i was thinking about is the poor workers that would clean the bathrooms at the olympic like after a gbh 14 band 5000 punk show <laughs> i remember we were sharing those pictures of us in the mcdonald's parking lot across the street from the olympic yeah. You, me, Martin, and Greg is in some of those as well. And I remember you commenting like, oh, those poor fucking McDonald's workers. Oh. Having to clean up the mess and deal with all the shenanigans. Like, uh, I mean, how much are those fuckers getting paid? Minimum wage and having four, to yeah, four bucks an hour in the 84. Idiots. Jesus. Just such punishment. Because that McDonald's was full of punks at it. When there was a you know a show at the Olympics, oh yeah, it was basically a punk party in the parking lot. Oh my god, yeah, can't even imagine. Yeah. Just low paid. I'm picturing Mexican workers at at all venues. I mean, the Olympic yeah. Auditorium, just cleaning up just the excrement of a mohawk. Oh my god, and that's the that's the story of not being able to have punk shows anywhere. It's always the bathrooms. It's always some idiot knocking the urinal off the wall, smashing the toilet, you know, just, it's always the bathrooms. Yeah. Cause it's porcelain. It can be crushed. It can be broken. Yeah. You, you know, bring your steel toe boots and kick the shit out of it. <laughs> what do punks have against toilets? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I guess partly because it's a zone where there's never any security. Like there's never somebody in the toilet too. like, like yeah. making. Yeah, totally. That's that. There's, there's no security. And then the poor toilet is just an easy target. <laughs> <clears throat> um, is there anything that you've heard on the podcast recently that you wanted to comment on or that surprised you or that was interesting? The thing that I was thinking about today was, what I have found interesting about the podcast is, well, obviously, I suppose, is listening to you, but listening to you speak about how through this podcast, you're sort of filling in gaps in your memory and refreshing your memory and, and at times relearning things that you just don't freaking remember. There's so much that I don't remember. And it's 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 interesting. It almost makes me think I should just start calling everyone I've ever fucking known and recording these conversations to see what I don't remember to fill in my gaps and refresh my memory. I, I don't I don't imagine doing a podcast, but yeah, even just recording it just for my own benefit, you know, and, and just to initiate these conversations and reach out to these people who I haven't even talked to in however long. Yeah. Well, I re I remember also sending you a message after the after the last episode you did with Martin. Yeah. 
I remember I sent you this message because I felt this and I believed it, obviously. But just listening to you two guys talk just brought me back to being 16 in Martin's truck, driving around, and you guys are talking. And it's, you know, yeah, I, sure, there's some nostalgia, whatever. But it's just kind of amazing how it just takes you back to that point in time. Yeah. You know, when I think about things like when we were 16 driving around, well, there's always that question, like, am I, I'm not, am I remembering a memory or am I remembering an actual event? Because, you know, once, once a memory is downloaded into you, you realize that you've replayed it in your mind so many times over the years. Oh, yeah. And it's so, like, that's, like Martin always says, to him, every show is the same show. Yeah. He only ever went to one punk show in the 80s. <laughs> Let's hope it was a good one. He went with that one show. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, 750 bands played, but it was it was all that one show. Is that one show? Yeah, it's really rare that's, that to have a show actually stand out as uh, a specific show. Like just today, I posted a flyer because I did a Joe Lally interview, the last one, and he, he I met him when he was on the road with Beefeater, and so I was I pulled up this flyer of this Beefeater show that was that weekend at the New Method Warehouse in Emeryville, and like that show stands out to me because. It took place at two in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. And it was in a sort of glass little, I don't, I mean, my memory of the room is that there were like big glass windows, like warehouse windows. So it was very much daylight show. And the bands were noteworthy Beefeater, Seven Seconds, Neurosis, Das sure. Domin. So it was a real interesting show. But I just remember, like that show, I go, I actually have a memory, a picture of that event, like the inside of it. Right. And a feeling. And then there's other ones where, you know, there'll be some like spe very specific set. Like I remember, for instance, like we were talking about Sun Valley Sportsman Hall. I remember seeing useless pieces of shit there. <laughs> the band useless pieces of shit. Well, see, that's why it's such a great name for a band. But, you know, I think about it. I go, well, why did that UPS set like stand out to me? Because they're called useless pieces of shit. But then it's funny because I went back and I looked. There's this video on YouTube. Uh -huh. Have you ever checked out UPS on YouTube? No. Just... Well, I highly recommend seeing this one video, which is them playing live. They're from Tucson, right? Um, and it's them playing live like at some outdoor Tucson street fair or something. Right. And so it's this very, um, I'd call it like psychedelic hardcore um, show. And it's and then the video's done very psychedelic. It's like got a lot of strange edits and slow downs and speed ups, and then it has like crowd shots and stuff. And something about that particular well, I was gonna say that the reason I brought it up is because watching that, it really made me think it really made made me aware how weird a band you useless pieces of shit were, just like the style of music that they played. <laughs> like their concept of a hardcore song is very kind of artistic. Right. And I didn't really know their music. I never listened to their records. If they even had records, they must have. But um but seeing that footage of them playing in Tucson, I was like, oh, okay, they probably made an impression on me because they're a lot weirder a band than I realized at the time. Right. Yeah. That, that must be it. Weird fucking band. Expecting just the generic thrash, whatever, and you've got something to yeah, I think that was definitely because something about like desert thrash, you know, when you think of the meat puppets and stuff like that, weird, weird bands come out of desert places. And uh, UPS definitely seems like a hardcore band that took a lot of LSD or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was just the drums. <laughs> Could have been. But yeah, um, so like I remember that stood out to me. And it actually. I mean, I, I honestly think that UPS video I'm talking about and everybody, I, I'll, maybe I'll link to it for this Instagram post because it made a huge impression on me watching that. Well, Tucson is, you know, Tucson was probably a little bit behind the curve anyway. You're going to see these punk bands in 82. You're really close to the 70s. There's dudes there with mustaches and long hair. Like, Oh, yeah. So in Tucson, it's probably like that still in the mid 80s. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I thought was interesting, too, in the Kevin Seconds interview. And same with Joan when I talked to her about Reno. And they were talking about that, how Reno always had, you know, people with long hair and mustaches. And there was never really a strong punk look. And we weren't really punk looking, you know. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Just pull up those pictures of us at the McDonald's across from the Olympic. I know. I mean, I was probably the most punk looking of of us because I had I had a leather jacket, like a normal dude with semi long hair wearing a leather jacket. <laughs> There's nothing else punk about you. We're all wearing punk band t shirts. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, Mark has just whatever normal hair. I've got a fucking Jufro. Well, There's nothing punk about us, but our t shirts <laughs> and your leather jacket. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, arguably, you could say like, well, no, because I was going to say like, you know, Martin's style, like that he's talked about when we've when we've done pod episodes, he's talked about you know wearing the like Dickies, winos, and a derby jacket. That's but, true. In those pictures, I'm talking about if you if you were to scan down, I'm sure he's wearing Dickies and winos. Yeah, but I guess those weren't really punk. That wasn't really even a punk look then. That was just a. If anything, it'd be more of a cholo look. Yeah, but it was it's it's a SoCal punk look. Yeah, throw on a flannel and you're good to go. Yeah, which again, it's borrowed from Cholo look. Yeah. So, are you going to be retiring from the Getty anytime soon? <laughs> well, my wife and I were just talking about that fairly recently, and obviously, I would love to retire, but. You know, it's all about timing and money and whatever. Have you ever, um, is it, has it been at the same location the entire time you worked there? No. When I started the, the Getty Center, you know, the big castle on the hill was not built yet. So um, where, where were you working then? I was working in Santa Monica. At the time, there was only the Getty Villa, the smaller museum in Malibu. I was working at the publications warehouse in Santa Monica. And they were building the Getty Center, the giant one in Brentwood. And after I started in 94 and the center opened maybe in 97. And then we were kind of like a small, we were like a small little mom and pop operation really. And then overnight it was just exploded. It was insane. So I started out, I was, I was in Santa Monica in preparation of the Getty Center opening. We moved out to a bigger warehouse in the Valley. And now I work up at the Getty. Up on the hill. Yeah. Have you ever met the Gettys? <laughs> no. Gordon Getty used to come around every once in a while. They would, they would do, he would do performances. He was a musician, I think. Uh, am I getting that wrong? Anyway, no. I never met any of the Gettys. Do you guys have a party where everybody Gettys together? <laughs> we used to Getty together, but now we don't do shit. Yeah. We used to have, it, it used to be a totally awesome, amazing place to work. They were awesome parties. It was great. And now it's a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, it really has gone corporate. It's not as cool as it used to be. What's the coolest thing that has happened during the time you've worked there in terms of like an event or something that you've been uh, to? They used to have a Cinco de Mayo party every year. Um, the like grounds guys would barbecue. They would have beer and it would just, just be during the day on a Tuesday or whatever it was. Those were always fun. Uh, there was a big party when the villa, after the Getty Center opened, they closed down the villa to redo it. That took forever. That took years. But when they, they did like a big blowout party to kind of shut down the villa and one of the like, I don't remember who it was, the museum director or somebody like, dove into one of the pools and <laughs> it was fun. 
Did you ever see any punk rock people at the Getty visiting? <laughs> uh, just random people walking around. I don't remember seeing any punk celebrities there. They're just random punkers, you know, in the galleries or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just but not like any punk luminaries. No, I don't. I can't think of any. I'm, I'm sure there have been whoever over the years. I was thinking, uh, it just occurred to me that the, I've only been there a few times, but um, one of the times I was there, I saw Wayne from Flaming Lips and his wife, Michelle. This must have been like 2000. Did you work there in 2000? Yeah, I started in 94. Well, I, I was not up at the, I wasn't working up at the museum. Oh, okay. I would have been out in the valley. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I guess, I don't know if you'd consider, he has was with the flaming lips ever punk they were punk adjacent they were certainly punk adjacent yeah and they've been around forever they were definitely from the punk days yeah so if you were weird in those days then fuck it you're punk so that's a punk sighting okay yeah sure uh, yeah. you can take credit for that one fuck yeah <laughs> right on um all right anything in closing that you want to uh tell the people or uh no sure. Sorry that this is such a boring podcast with with me on it. No, I mean honestly, this is what this podcast is all about. This is getting back to the roots. One of these days we can do one centered on my various LA celebrity sightings. I just haven't really had any at the Getty. <laughs> well, now you're leaving it with this like this bait. Okay, let's let's get into got to leave them wanting more, Jason. And okay, but I'm going to give them let's give them a taster. I'm going to ask you right now, off the top of your head, what is the first celebrity sighting that comes to mind now? Romeo Blue. Excuse me? Lenny Kravitz. Before he was Lenny Kravitz, he was Romeo Blue. <laughs> so that was his first, his name, his original stage name? Yes. His stage name was Romeo Blue, and he was dating Lisa Bonet. I was working at Agnes B. What's that? A fancy French clothing store. Mm -hmm. My first job in LA. I was working there. Working at Agnes B was a constant struggle between me and the girls because they wanted to play the Beatles. And if they got tired of the Beatles, they wanted to play more Beatles. I wanted to play anything but the Beatles. So it was a constant. Red Hot Chili Peppers? Yeah, Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> I'm sure I tried. <laughs> but the, the great thing about that was we were, in, we were encouraged. We were supposed to play cool music, whatever. And so we're, we would be playing whatever music. So we're working, we're listening to music. And across the street from Agnes B was this fancy restaurant called The Ivy. And... Romeo Blue was having dinner with Lisa Bonet and either before or after dinner, they came shopping in Agnes B. We were playing some cool music, whatever we were playing. I don't know. Anyway, Romeo starts talking to us. We're talking about music and he was so fucking cool. He was the nicest guy. You know, like when you say, oh my God, he was such a sweetheart. He was total sweetheart. He runs to the car, gets his demo tape, brings us the Romeo Blue demo tape so that we can play it in the store. I wish I had the tape. I don't know what ever happened to that. Oh, shit. That would be golden. Yeah, that'd be awesome if someone still has that. Anyway, the first, first celebrity sighting that comes to mind is Lenny Kravitz as Romeo Blue with Lisa Bonet in tow. Was Romeo Blue famous? No. More um, just because of Lisa Bonet. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm pretty sure someone just said, dude, Romeo Blue, come on, just use your real name. Yeah, you're Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably 87, 88. And then when did Lenny Kravitz's first album come out? A year or two later? No idea when that dropped. Yeah. I wonder what was on that demo tape he brought us. It was probably generic thrash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with hints of UPS. <laughs> with hints of, so, okay, next time uh, we're just going to do a full-on just list of celebrity sightings. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. Sounds good. Great. Great talking to you, Pat. Great to see your face. Yeah. So you can stop recording now and we can just just Western international talent thought live on the street. We're uh, setting up here. We have a band that's going to be playing here in the street. If you're not doing anything better, come on down, put on a costume or not, wear what you're wearing. Take it off. We don't care. Come on down to the corner of Congress and Stone, where UPS is setting up on the street behind me. UPS. Yes, you read about them in the Tucson Weekly. You read about them in the Wildcat. So good to talk to Pat. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Pat, for speaking with me. I think next time we talk to him, we should have a a three-way call with Martin. Get the zine back together, man. Zines don't get to reunite very often. We get a zine back together, man. That would be fun, chaotic podcast. I think we wouldn't talk over each other too much. I don't think we'd do that. So we'll make that happen in the future. Thank you again, Pat. Appreciate it. <clears throat> I don't know who my guest is going to be next time on the Traeger Method. It'll be somebody good, though. Um, I got my art show up at Stumptown Roasters in Portland. It's going to be up through April now. Traeger Method paintings. These are my oil paintings. Check out my website, TraegerMethod.com. It's got art for sale. Thank you for supporting the art. Thank you for supporting this podcast. It means the world to me that you listen. Thank you so much to everyone who's DM'd me. I appreciate that. I love that this means something to you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.